And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. We're back with just the two of us after having a wonderful podcast last week with people who actually knew what they were talking about. I know. It was intimidating, wasn't it? It was intimidating. Baron <laughs> knows everything there is to know about Diana Wynne-Jones. I am so glad we did that, though, because... Uh, because we were pretty pathetic the week before. I know. It's like that was the compensation podcast for everybody. Like you listen to us kind of be weak and blather around and be useless, and now here's someone who's like prepared and smart and intelligent. Right. And really, we should and, just and, and Tansy as well. Tansy Absolutely. had read all the stuff. They were they were having a wonderful conversation. Uh, I felt like I could have gone out and gotten a burger. And <laughs> yeah, I must I must admit I felt somewhat similarly. <laughs> But but I confess that I was very actually no I was I was fascinated to listen because it is always interesting to hear somebody who knows stuff particularly stuff you're interested in but no don't know that much about yourself talking about stuff and that to me was the great attraction I guess of that uh, and I'm I'm eager to look into other people I mean I, I do want to sort of do some reading into Joan Aiken uh, which is sort mm-hmm. of prom- prompted by the publication this month of a new collection of stories by Small Beer from Aiken. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They're new stories as well. Uh, the, I don't know where these things are coming from. I don't know if there's some sort of like magic box. But um, about two years ago, um, Small Beer published a collection of Aiken stories, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Armitage family stories. And there was probably four or five new stories in that. And I think there's like another five or six new stories in this one, uh, a book called The Monkey's Wedding. And I'm... Really looking forward to that, and then I mean, I'd be, I'd love to have a chat with um, with Kelly about Aiken because obviously she and Gavin know a lot about her. Well, she and Gavin do a very good job of keeping an eye out for things, mm. and uh, I know Gavin, for example, trolled uh, G- Gavin. I think, um, and I, I will be corrected on this by Karen. Hi, Karen Lord, who is one of my favorite people now and who now listens to us occasionally. But as I understand it, it was Gavin who discovered Karen Lord's novel Redemption in Indigo okay. uh, as a result of a post by Nalo Hopkinson on the Carl Brandon Society webpage. Cool. There's a whole bunch of things people can correct me if I, if I got wrong. But, the, but essentially, uh, I, the thing I like about small beer and admire about small beer, and I admire uh, you know, in, in varying degrees and in different ways about Nightshade and Tachyon and other small press publishers, Underland and so forth, sure. is that they do keep their eyes out for people that are really, really interesting as opposed to people who are simply commercially viable, which is what the New York publishers tend to do. Um, so small beer has given us, uh, you know, they, they gave us Karen Lord. They're bringing back, uh, you know, Joan Aiken, as you mentioned. Yes, yep. Uh, they, they did, uh, okay, um, Angela Goradisher. Yep, which is a terrific uh, book. Yep. Terrific book, yeah. And this is stuff which is, is a, this is what small presses are really good for. They really provide a service of, uh, for, for those of us who want to read, literary stuff which is not necessarily uh, what you would consider commercial even in the sort of you know postmodern uh, sure. post-colonial commercial sense that uh, that the New York publishers love yeah no, no I think that's true I mean in many ways if you look at the <clears throat> the classic you know, image of a small press an independent publisher bringing work that you wouldn't really necessarily be aware of otherwise into print and to a larger audience they might be the most definitive small press we've seen since Arkham House I mean, if you look at the, and that, that's me being using hyperbole, but um, if you look at most of the small presses these days, they either want to be New York publishers or mm-hmm. they are going for the collector's market, both of which are entirely sensible and viable you know, options. 
But in terms of the, oh, yeah, the sort of yeah. the, the classic kind of small press, the kind of press that you would figure would be winning the Pushcart Prize kind of a thing, small beer are it, and you can see it in the kind of books that they do. Well, small beer is. Uh, I, I have no idea if I've. I, I may have talked to Kelly and Gavin about this at some point, mm-hmm. but I, I would go back before Arkham House. I would say that what they what they really look like are Virginia and Leonard Wolf's press, uh, okay. where they're talking about people that they know, people that are very literary, but people that are in this community yeah. that that they recognize there is a readership for this, and they have that readership. They know how to get that readership. It's not a huge readership, uh, but it's out there, and uh, there's a. It's it's not just small beer. I mean, some no. of this goes on and and on. One of the things, by the way, just as a parenthesis, sort of a smug, uh, smug statement that uh, last year when I was on the World Fantasy Awards committee, uh, we split the award, as everybody knows, between Gene Wolfe, who you cannot not give a World Fantasy Award <laughs> when he has to collect his stories out. <laughs> yeah. But there was this other really stunning collection that all of us were blown away by, by somebody we'd never heard of, Ludmilla Petrushevskaya. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a sort of postmodern Kafka-esque fairy tales, but they were really good stories. They were gripping stories. Okay, this week I noticed, and I'm, I'm not claiming any connection at all, but this <laughs> week for the first time, I think, there is a short story by Ludmilla Petrushevskaya in The New Yorker. Really? Yes. I, I was unaware of that. And it's another uh, one sort of fairy tale redaction fantasy kind of story that uh, is the sort of thing that even the New Yorker begins to pay attention to. And I have this feeling, I, I don't think I could prove this in any way, yeah. that the sort of things that Small Beer does or the sort of things that, that our awards committee do when uh, when we recognize these things may have some kind of a ripple effect. Okay. Um, it, it may very well be that, uh, I mean, Joan Aiken has had stories in the New Yorker in the past, as a mm-hmm. matter of fact, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, but... Um, when, when, when there, there, there are three or four things that's, that, that small publishers do. One is that. One is to kind of keep alive that literary fantastic tradition, which, is, which fall bet- falls between the cracks, I suppose. Yeah. You know, interstitial in a somewhat different sense of the meaning of interstitial. There are uh, places like Nightshade, which this year is very heavily emphasizing new writers, first yes. novelists, and so forth. Very interesting, because you don't know what you're going to get. And you're sort of completely depending on on their, on their judgment on people you've never heard of. Yeah. And there are places like Tachyon, which is uh, uh, I, th- I think I said this in a review. If not, it's a review I haven't, haven't <laughs> published. That you know, Tachyon has a few signature authors. I mean, Tachyon has been heavily defined by Peter Beagle, yep. by the Kessel Kelly anthologies. Yep. There are certain things that they do very well that are very identifiable, uh, that give them an identity and. I'm absolutely delighted that they're doing for Peter Beagle what they've done for him. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree completely. I'm looking forward to, well, okay, well it's, I was going to say, I'm looking forward to Sleight of Hand, which is the new collection, but that's almost disingenuous since I've got a galley of it. So, um, right. But I think it's a, another good, uh, another very good Peter Beagle book uh, that they've done. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, when I look around, I mean, it's, it's interesting as well when you, you also add, say, Subterranean into the, the, the uh, mix, yeah. because they're sort of an odd blend. I mean, they do their online magazine, which is a whole bunch of interesting fiction. They do collectors, I mean, real collector's books. I mean, let, let, let's do an, a, a nice reprint of old Tim Powers novels. And then right. they do things like, you know, The Best of Larry Niven or whatever, which are these sort of great sort of terms, you know, sort of volumes that sort of that sit in the history of the genre that are worth having. So um, I think I think it's got me most excited at Small Beer right now is that they're about to start, well, they're going to continue reprinting uh, some Jeff Ryman. 
because they're doing. Oh, wonderful! Well, they did no. Uh, let me correct. No, it's, I think it was Aqueduct who did the Jeff Ryman, Ellen Clay just thing from Wiscon, didn't they? Yes, they did. Couple and that, that was that was excellent. Well, that was a little small. Well, not don't want to don't want to demean it. It's a small chat book of a couple of stories. Right. Um, which were really good. I think that all three stories were original. Ellen did two, and Jeff did one. I think, if I remember correctly. Right. I believe that's true. Um, uh, yeah. But but Aqueduct should be in, in in this list as well because they've done very interesting things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them nonfiction, some of them the Wiscon Chronicles, the tribute to Ursula Le Guin that uh, came out last year. But they also did uh, a collection of stories by Chan Davis, of all persons, uh, yes. a, a writer for S and F and SF back in the 50s and 60s, virtually forgotten, but you know, rereading his material and what they're interested in is gender roles and yep. feminism and so forth. He was a very interesting writer to look at from that point of view. Yep. And, 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 and that sort of thing, maybe even more so than what uh, Tachyon and Small Beer and, and um, uh, oh, I don't know, the, the, the um, Subterranean and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and Nightshade are doing, that's the sort of thing which is very much a specialized kind of reprint market that's almost what you might call an ideological reprint market. There are these well, people, is, yeah. uh, there, there, there are these people who, who wrote very interesting stories that we don't know about. And I, I will give credit to, um, uh, to Timmy Duchamp for keeping an eye out for that sort of thing and, and coming up with an interesting list. Absolutely. Uh, they, I mean, did, they did Leslie Watts' first collection, as I recall. They did. I, well, I think they did, yeah. But they, um, they've also just done something interesting as ebook only. They've just released uh, Gwyneth Jones' Illusion Trilogy. You know, mm-hmm. North Wind, White Queen, and the other one. Uh, right. As a, uh, but they're rewritten. Uh, I oh, think, really? I did not yeah, know that. Yeah, um, Jones has gone back and made some changes and cleaned up and whatever else. But they're they're ebook only, which is really interesting. And, and in fact, I'm trying to work out how we're going to sort of deal with maybe reviewing these books at the moment. I was talking to um, Paul Whitcover about this very issue because mm-hmm. I think sort of yeah, Jones is always worth inter- um, covering. One of the interesting questions you met, you had, it's interesting, you were asking me about this about Brian Aldous, who's a, from a different generation. question I have is why is Gwyneth Jones not better known in the States? I don't know how well she known, known she is in Australia, but she seems to me to be clearly a major writer who's done consistently good work, critical work as well as fiction. She's still writing illusion stories. I believe you have one in the... Yeah. Uh, in, 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 in the new... Eclipse, uh, Eclipse. Eclipse 4. Yeah. The new Slimline Eclipse. A, Right, exactly. Um, the, the the new diet eclipse, um, but it's still uh, she's she's had this consistent body of work. Yeah, uh, and she's an incisive, very brilliant writer in all sorts of ways. She has very she's she's done a, a couple of books of essays. She actually received the Pilgrim Award from the yeah. Science Fiction Research Association, and in the states, I don't see her having that high visibility outside of a fairly narrow. Uh, community of, uh, of of feminist scholars and writers and readers, uh, so yeah. the Wiscon community, she's very visible. Uh, is that the sense you get in Australia? Very much. I mean, I was never aware of her very much having a high profile. I knew that her, I mean, her books were always published here because she used to be with Alan and Unwin quite some time ago. Mm. And so her stuff came out fairly much automatically. And obviously Torg did give her a, a you know, a good run in the, in the US because they, yeah. they, in fact, they published the Aleutian trilogy originally. Uh, along with maybe a few other things. And I think the last book Jones had published, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure the last book she had was from Aqueduct, and that was Life. Yes. And the, right. the one before that, uh, Nightshade had a go at publishing the uh, Boulder's Love Trill series 
in in the US. They published the first of those, and that didn't really go terribly well. I think she, I mean, she's got doesn't much for profile. I think it's a combination of things. I think she writes really fascinating, intellectually demanding work. And I I think I was going to say, yeah, she writes intellectual fiction. I agree completely with that. So there's so there's that, but I also think she doesn't have that signature thing. I mean, all of the the I remember when Baldur's Love, the first book, came out of the quintet. And I remember going around saying, I've read this book, I love this book, it's brilliant. Surely you're going to publish it. And I remember people like, say, David Hartwell saying, I love this book too, it's brilliant, it's fantastic, it's far too British, we can't touch it. So uh-huh. so there was that feeling that she was on the other I mean, the other end of that kind of British, you know, like th- that book is too British for the US, five books of that series is far too British for us, we won't do that. Um, and then the other work, I think the Aleutian Trilogy had perhaps... It had been given its chance to be successful, but perhaps hadn't found the market that it may ultimately potentially find. Mm-hmm. And um, what that meant was when she did another, and I'm pretty sure Spirit is part of it's, it's connected to one of her series as well, uh, which is her most recent novel. That also didn't find, never found a U.S. publisher. So I mean, there's just this notion that, that I think she's sort of not warm and fuzzy, I guess. Well, I mean, part of, part of that has to do with being intellectually demanding mm-hmm. and being very acerbic and, and having complicated plots, complicated at the level of character relationships and family relationships sure. and that sort of thing, not just in terms of the ideology. But it also raises the issue of whether there are writers that American publishers, or maybe I would imagine this is less true in Australia because of the connections like Alan London, but I've, I've heard this said of any number of writers who are too British for American Yeah. Uh, publishers, uh, John Courtney Grimwood is another one who has sure. had that same thing happen to him. That his uh, uh, Arabesque trilogy, which I thought was brilliant, was it's and it's alternate history, but it's alternate history at too complex a level and too complex politically, and it deals with people who are yeah. uh, non-Anglo characters, uh, you know, taking place in Alexandria largely. That uh, that they that there was a feeling that American readers simply wouldn't identify with. Yeah. And, as, and he, he, even when he wrote a book uh, that was actually a hard-boiled novel set in San Francisco, Nine-Tailed Fox, um, that ended up with Nightshade, which I am, admire them for doing it. Uh, but it's, it's an indication that, well, okay, his market is a kind of specialty market in the States. Very much. I mean, and I mean, this is where, you know, to sort of to come for sort of full circle, where, where publishers like Small Beer become very important because mm-hmm. I can well imagine anyone listening to this podcast going, well, hang on a minute. That's really condescending. I'm, a, I'm a, an American reader and I'm smart and able to read, acerb- read acerbically intelligent fiction, or I am by no means, you know, sort of against reading um, British type stories. After all, I have a full set of, you know, sort of James Bond novels. I've seen Mary Poppins four times. I'm up for mm-hmm. reading a little bit of British stuff. Surely this is ridiculous. And the truth of it is that, well, what I suspect is quite often it's just too hard to find a core market for it. You know, for, I mean, you can imagine if you're sitting in New York and you're trying to sell a book and you want to sell tens of thousands of copies, you're looking for core market. And if core market can't readily be found, found, then you get really sort of uncomfortable. Whereas, like for small beer, I reckon by mm-hmm. now, I mean, they've been around, I don't know how long, but certainly longer than 10 years. Yeah. Right? And my guess is that now you get small beer type books. And so if, let's say, small beer were to publish a Gwyneth Jones book, then it would fall into small beer kind of stuff. And and that, that that's the benefit of that. 
which may be a way of getting at that readership in the United States. I mean, I, yeah. I, I understand there are people, uh, and I count myself among them, who are very frustrated at the uh, amount of British fiction that that almost disappears when it shows up in the United States. One of, I, I am convinced, and I don't mind saying this on a podcast, that one of the best writers alive in the world today is Graham Joyce. Mm-hmm. And he does not do well in the States. Uh, the Silent Land might do well in the States. Yeah, I, It's too early to tell. But uh, as I recall, the, uh, the Limits of Enchantment, which I thought was an absolutely gorgeous, yeah. lovely book, uh, just about almost disappeared here. Well, it did, but I mean, uh, this is one of those things where we walk into the territory of complicated publishing issues. I mean, I remember well, talking to, to Graham about his publishing history in the United States, and for the books before it, I think Smoking Poppy maybe was the book before, or um, uh, Facts of Life. Facts of Life. Yeah. Facts of Life. And those books did really well. Mm. Um, well, Facts of Life got, in defense of that, Facts of Life got marketed largely as a mainstream kind of book. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, there are certain there are certain British writers who, and I, I, I'm not sure exactly what I would describe this at. The, there's a kind of literary effect where yeah. you get from. Uh, um, I'm completely blanking on the name of the British writer who wrote uh, the, the, the the woman who did oh this Victorian pastiche kind of thing. I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah. Uh, if you if, if, if facts of life, if you looked at facts of life, or uh, you looked uh, at um, some of uh, oh uh, uh, Chris Priest the uh, separation is another mm-hmm. one yeah and look at the American package of those they look like mainstream novels yeah uh, and there's there's a sense we can get to this uh, we, we we can get to this sort of literary uh, uh, market in in the states and 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 maybe avoid or bypass or we, the assumption maybe we can get the science fiction and fantasy market anyway yeah. so we'll try to break these people out. Yeah. And I gather the facts of life did a lot better than the limits of enchantment did. Yes. But the limits of enchantment was visibly a step forward in what he was doing from the facts of life. I mean, you could see the movement in, in from one novel to the next. Yeah, but then limits of enchantment. I mean, to, to go into that publishing stuff was the book where they changed editors for him at the publishing house, and the book fell between the cracks at the That's publishing true. house. That's true. It got so, so, you know, that wasn't especially, you know, particularly anything to do with Joyce or his relationship to the market. Um, and then the next book had a quite a checkered history to get out into the United States. Uh, so the Silent Land really is the first chance to test the waters again and see if they can reestablish him and, uh, and and get his audience, you know, growing again. And to some extent, the Silent Land is, in one sense, the most commercial book he's done in years. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, it 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 could it could do very well. I mean, it's an interesting. Uh, it, it's a very interesting package. I got my copy. A couple of weeks ago, the yep. final copy, uh, which I'm always delighted when I see the final copy of a book after I've reviewed it, and I realize, oh, they're they're completely packaging this in a different way than I thought they were going to, <laughs> and I was completely wrong. But um, but yeah, it it, it 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 could do well. Um, the um, uh, what was the uh, Graham Joyce novel that? Oh, they did the uh, Memoirs of a Master Forger. Yes, from Nightshade, uh, and again, that seemed to do very well in England. I, I did I emailed yes, Graham back and forth it about did. that. And it uh, it did more or less all right for Nightshade, uh, yeah. But but not not the kind of thing you would expect. And that potentially was a very commercial novel too. One of the stories from that novel, I think, won an O. Henry Award. It did uh, indeed. Yeah. So it did indeed. Um, so you know, I mean, in that you know, from from that perspective, sort of, it is interesting that that's what happened to, to Graham, particularly since, as you say, he's an extraordinary writer. Um, yes, absolutely. 
I'm also sort of interested because you, know, you talk about how things are packaging or packaged. Um, small beards sort of keep coming back, not because I, I don't own any part of the company. So. <laughs> there is no stock in small beer. Nor have I sold them any books, nor do <laughs> I have any commercial relationship with them at all. Just they're devastatingly nice people and do, do good books. But they're publishing two books by one of my favorite writers. They're doing okay. a new collection by Jeff Ryman, Paradise Tales, which is coming out in July, mm -hmm. and I can't wait to read that. That's great. But they're also reprinting one of my favorite books. They're reprinting The Child Garden, which I oh, read. Oh, excellent. Now, you know, which I read way back when. I mean, I read that back in when it first came out in 1980-something or whatever it was. And I got a first edition kicking around in the front room. And it's this nice sort of chilly white-looking cover with a little bit of splash of color. Because after all, it's that, sort of, it's that whole cutting-edge biopunk kind of a book. It's all about sort of uh, using viruses to educate people and all that. The cover that Small Beer are doing is a chick-lit cover. Really? Almost. I mean, they'll probably slap me in the face for saying. But, I mean, in fact, I know that I was talking to Cheryl Morgan about this, and they, they had an, an original treatment for the cover-up, and it was really interesting and looked right. And now they've come up with this really, in fact, very cute-looking cover of this sort of cute little girl with her little sort of parasol, little yellow top, and this sort of bear that's not that's not a polar bear, and the bear in the book is a polar bear, looking all kind of, sort of looking at her askance and talking to her. And it's this really interesting package for this book. And it's a great book. I mean, or, I have to say, assuming it hasn't been touched by the Suck Fairy, which I doubt. But I read it 20 years ago, and I adored the book. I thought it was brilliant. So well, um, Yeah, I, two things about that. One is uh, that could be very clever. I mean, Small Beer does have a reputation for doing fairly quirky covers. Mm -hmm. uh, if you remember the cover of Stranger Things Happened, which yes. I think was by the writer. I can't remember her name. Um, but at any rate... Um, the other thing I thought was interesting about that was the Child Garden is not only something that belongs in Small Beer, and if I'm not mistaken, they did a reprint of um, the King's Last Song, didn't they as yes. well? So they've they've been they're they're a very good publisher for Jeff Ryman in the states. Yeah. But the thing I remember about the Child Garden, and I think I may have, it may have been one of the first books I ever reviewed for Locust, maybe that long ago, uh, was that the whole kind of Third world ethos, the whole the, the yeah. whole idea, the, the whole theme of desperation, which became Ian McDonald's favorite theme. Yeah. Well, and and to some extent became one of Jeff Ryman's continuing themes with his Cambodian stories. Sure. Yeah. Was there was there in a science fictional context in that book? Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 I, it's interesting. I, I'm thinking about this for the first time. When I think about the whole rediscovery of the third world, in uh, or or I should say, to use the term that. That uh, that Ian McDonald prefers the developing world. Yeah. The presence of that world in science fiction, I tend to date from the Child Garden more than any other single book. Uh, there were other books before that. There was a writer named, uh, let me think, uh, Ernest Hogan, mm -hmm. a Chicano writer who did. Yes, a, I, yeah, a yeah, yes, I remember the books. Very good writer. Did a couple of Mexican books. He's, high Aztec uh, and a few other. High Aztec, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. There were some of those things, but the idea that this was a sort of meme in science fiction um, seemed to me to begin about the time that uh, that uh, that Jeff wrote the child garden and people can correct me on that this is this is one of the things where we're going to get comments on your blog because awesome. I know I'm wrong about that oh that's great now, now the interesting thing about that is doesn't the child garden uh, chronologically sync up with cyberpunk um or am I off by a few bit, years? It's a, it's, I think it's a little bit later than that. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a little bit later than the cyberpunk official cyberpunk date of, I guess the official cyberpunk date is what mirror shades, uh, which as somebody pointed out recently, doesn't even have very many cyberpunk stories. No, in it. Doesn't. <laughs> but I mean, that's what nine. Well, okay. You, you could, you could date it anywhere, but so let's say 19, you go to 1985, say, which is yeah. around the time, uh, neuromancer was published. So you'd think that a cyberpunk would be anywhere from say 83 through 88, 89 in its original form. I guess it's original form, and, and then it somehow became mass culture with. Uh, well, see, let's go back. Blade Runner was what, eighty-two? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the ethos, the idea, the visual idea yeah. of cyberpunk was there that early. Um, I think you could pretty much say the the '80s saw a lot of cyberpunk novels, a lot of cyberpunk. Sure, yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the word you used in terms of uh, a Child Garden a few minutes earlier ago was biopunk. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the things that sort of may have been related or may not have been related to, to cyberpunk, but it was essentially uh, a, a kind of countercultural technology yeah, based on yeah. biology rather than cybernetics. Sure. You know the book it ties in with, I think? I'm to have to look at the timing. Islands in the Net. Interesting thought. That that had to be, what, 85? Look no, no, no. I reckon Islands in the Net, off the top of my head, is going to prove to have been... Sorry, everybody hear me clicking now because I don't have my copies of uh, my Sterling novels out the front. And they're sort of in the uh -huh. other room. But uh, my feeling on Islands in the Net was that it was late, 90, late 80s. Right? Late 80s? Late oh, 80s for, for, for that. I'll have it in two seconds. Ting, 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 ting. Uh, and it's also one of my favorite. Uh, yeah, 1988. Isn't that great? Okay, 1980, okay. So 1988 for Islands in the Net. So there you have a drowned... Uh, 21st century uh, Southeast Asia and everything else, boof, all the kind mm -hmm. of uh, po almost post-cyberpunky stuff. Next year, what comes out? Child Garden. Those books, okay. those books tie to and precursor exactly what Neil, what, what Ian McDonald is doing now. Which is kind of the point I was, I was thinking of, that, 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 that I, I, I knew that Jeff was very interested in that world, had written about that world, and uh, to go back, I mean, cyberpunk, yes. I mean, cyberpunk obviously dates in many senses from Neuromancer. I mean, you can find yeah. elements before that. I mean, there's, uh, the, there's a whole pre-cyberpunk. Um, I'm sure there's a pre-cyberpunk website. You can go back to people like David Bunch. Sure, sure. Um, but, uh, but essentially what we think of as cyberpunk dates from that period. I think Ryman, I think Jeff Ryman was working in a different tradition. I think he was working out of a sense of... Um, Collapsed British imperialism in a way. Sure. The notion that there is another world out there which we have ignored, and which uh, which has a potential for technological development beyond what the Anglo-American Axis traditionally has. Okay. Does it tie into the, um, at least in terms of setting and everything, the disaster novels of the 60s from the UK, the whole drowned world kind of a scenario? Um, the Ballard things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. My sense, my 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 initial response to that is probably not. Okay, okay. Uh, Ballard himself was not terribly sophisticated when it came to um, mm -hmm. uh, computer technology and virtual reality and that sort of thing. Uh, I think in some ways you can trace this back to. Um, 
There there are two things going on here. One is the cyberpunk virtual reality living in the net kind of thing. You can certainly trace that back to Arthur Clarke. Yeah, uh, you can trace that part of it back to the beginning of the remember the opening of Childhood's End is a, is a, a very, very dis- vivid description of a VR experience. Yeah. Um, and he, he's, he's living in this sword and sorcery world. And then you realize, OK, this is all computer generated imagery. <laughs> uh, the other issue, which I think contributes to Jeff Ryman's stuff, is the notion that there is a you know, there is a future that exists in the world which is not determined by Brits and Americans. <laughs> but maybe well, the people in India or Brazil <laughs> or Cambodia or Southeast Asia or Africa have something to say about the future. Ne- never, never mind those you know, sort of billions of Chinese and Indians and everybody else who have uh, yeah, exactly, a very significant right. voice, voice in the, both the, the, the present and the future you'd have to think. Yes. And science fiction has, you know, sort of, sorry, let's be clear here. Western science fiction, particularly published in North America, has always had a trouble coming to terms with that. I mean, uh, Paul McCauley put a very witty piece up on his uh, blog just just in the last couple of just about two weeks ago, a piece called "How to Write a Generic Science Fiction Novel." And uh, he does talk. He does briefly address the whole issue of putting in, you know, your your token non-white person in the background as as a you know sort of as a sidekick kind of a thing because that's what they're good for the the, the, yeah. the non-white peoples in in a generic science fiction novel. Here we go. Always include some non-Americans for local color, like the Irish steerage, steerage passengers in Titanic, the movie. They're cheerful, deferential, and possess, possess a quaint and lively culture. And up to a point, up to a certain point in time, that's what they were for, in terms of science fiction. He's completely right. Um, and it's books like Islands in the Net, then The Child Garden, and then the books that, that the books we're not naming because we're not thinking of them that came through the mid-90s that, that then lead to exactly what we've got from Ian MacDonald and others. I think that Trishan, I, I, I will look at Paul's piece because he's a very smart guy. Yeah. And I think he's right. But I think that tradition, he's writing from a British perspective. Oh, yeah. In the United States, at least, that tradition goes back way beyond even the invention of science fiction. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, points that, uh, w- w- one of my sort of career models, um, as a critic, as an academic at least, was an American critic named Leslie Fiedler, who'd written a book called, yeah. uh, his most famous book was called Love and Death in the American Novel. And I, I met him a couple of times. Uh, and one of the things that I learned from him was that he had, he became the uh, controversial historian and critic of American literature, but he'd done his dissertation on, I think, the Cavalier poets in England. Mm-hmm. And he said, a piece of advice he gave me as an academic, which any academics who are listening to this can pay attention to, <laughs> is never publish anything about anything you studied in school. <laughs> publish, <laughs> publish stuff about the things you love. So he loved American literature. He loved Mark Twain. Yep. Uh, the background of this is that he pointed out in his book, Love and Death in the American Novel, which is one of the classic critical books about American literature, yeah. that characteristic, one of the recurring characteristics of American literature is that you have a white American uh, traditional uh, uh, frontier hero who always has a non-Anglo, non-white sidekick. Okay. You go back to... You go back to James Fenimore Cooper in the 1830s mm-hmm. and 1840s, whose best friend was Chingachgook, who was a, who was yeah. a Native American. Sure. You go from that to Moby Dick, where you've got the narrator Ishmael, whose best friend is uh, uh, what we now recognize as a Polynesian native. Yeah. 
you go from that on to Mark Twain, uh, who's Huckleberry Finn's best friend is an escaped slave named Jim. Yeah. And, and, and this, this goes, goes right up to it's, it, it goes right up to and includes the Green Hornet with Kato, his <laughs> Japanese assistant, and, and, and the Lone Ranger and Tonto and this sort of thing. Uh, There's always been this really patronizing, but patronizing, but yet valorizing attitude toward people who are of non-dominant cultures. That's yes. been a characteristic of American literature. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been picked up by science fiction as well. I think that that when uh, uh, I mentioned the Green Hornet, uh, it, it shows up in pulp fiction. It shows up uh, yep. earlier in science fiction. And I suspect that there's something similar going on in Britain. Okay. Uh, and I suspect in Britain, I'm making this up totally as I go along. <laughs> Welcome it to probably, podcast. It probably started with Kipling. Okay. Kip, Kipling had heroic Hindus who were enormously demeaning and racial stereotypes at the same time. Gunga Din is the classic poem, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gunga Din is this sort of classic sort of third world moral disaster who is a heroic, he's more noble, he's a, you're a better man than I am, Gunga Din, because he helps warn the British troops against the oncoming Hindu hordes. I mean, he's a complete <laughs> betrayal of his own people, but that makes him a hero because he's more noble than we are. <laughs> we and do. I think science fiction inherits that whole tradition. Very much. I think that's completely true. I think science fiction has got a, does have a very checkered history in this regard. And certainly if you go back to classic Golden Age stuff, it's, it's, it's very, very plain that that's the case. You know, oh, so. yeah. There, there was, for all the Yellow Menace stories, there was a friend of mine. Uh, the friend of mine, I, I met him. I, I've lost touch with him years ago. A guy named Frank Wu, who is not the Frank Wu you're thinking of, because Frank Wu is a is is, is a artist and, a, and, yeah. and an Asian scientist. This is a guy who is who at at the time I knew him was the dean of the law school at uh, a university in Michigan. Yeah. Um, and he had done a, a study of um, Native American of, of Asian American stereotypes mm-hmm. uh, in popular culture. He had no. He was fascinated to find out I was interested in science fiction. I was interested to find out that he was a law professor. Yep. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and one of the things he pointed out was that there is, at the same time, you've got the yellow peril stories going on from M.P. Scheele and others back in the, from the 1890s to the 18, to the 1930s at least. You also had the heroic, the good Oriental. You had the Charlie <laughs> Chan figures. Uh, you know, yeah. For every, Ming the Merciless, there was some good guy. But the good Orientals were always in a subservient position yes, to yes. the Anglo hero. Yes, the heroic sidekick. Even if they were the heroic sidekick who actually did all the heroing, they were still the sidekick. You know, yeah. You know, whether they were, you know, they were always Jeeves but never Worcester. Exactly. Um, there was there was a sense that they're they're simple but pure. Yes. I guess that was the attitude. How cool. And one of the things I think that uh, to get back to a moment to to Jeff Ryman and Ian McDonald and 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 the other people we're talking about, uh, they, I think I think what they were trying to do was to. Recre- redeem that stereotype to some extent. Yeah. But this is a real culture with real people in it. Yes. I think you're right. I think you're very, you're, you're totally right. Yes. Uh, I, I, and you know, I wonder how much, be- I mean, I think we're beginning to do better. I don't I'd know. Like to, I, I'd, I'd like to think we are. Here's an interesting question to think about, and I'm not going to necessarily go beyond saying you should think about this. Mm-hmm. But when you look at Nnedi Okorafor's treatments of Africa, in contrast to, let's say, Mike Resnick's treatments of Africa, <laughs> what, 
What conclusions might you draw? <laughs> that sometimes it's very bully, but nonetheless, that doesn't make it very accurate. <laughs> and you have to allow that there are two different North American views of Africa, because they're both oh, absolutely. North American. Absolutely. Uh, and the North American view of Africa. Uh, and, 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 and in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, uh, both Resnick... Uh, well, probably more Resnick than Nettie, because Nettie's yeah, writing yeah. out a genuine African-American perspective, sure, well, yeah, yeah. are trying to correct the perspectives of Africa you would have gotten earlier in H. Ryder Haggard mm -hmm. or in Edgar Rice Burroughs or in the, uh, the, the the noble savage kind of hidden civilization thing that, well, there must be. But, but you know, here's the thing. Even in those stories, if there was a hidden civilization in somewhere in Africa, I'm thinking of she particularly, yeah. there was a white woman at the head of it. <laughs> Yes, that lamentably is true as well. Yeah, what? very interestingly, because this is what happens in podcasts. You will be you'll be completely surprised, I trust, to know that uh, one of the little win I've got these little tabs open on my desktop before we start about things we could talk about. And one thing that I that crossed my mind actually was a book that you've read that I have not, but which I've ordered because it was published the day before yesterday, mm -hmm. which which of course which is of course a Carter witch. Uh Cutterwitch. Yeah, which has just come out. Mm -hmm. So it goes to show that these things are all completely um, connected by some interesting fate. Akata Witch is an interesting novel since it's just come out and since I think I reviewed it months ago. You do. The, uh, the, the review is online at locusmag.com. Oh, excellent. Good. Everybody go look at it unless, <laughs> unless Nettie is mad at me, which I don't think she is or I would have heard from her. Okay, so but pause the, the podcast is, now. Okay. Uh, uh, Akata Witch. Well, uh, okay, good. Um, the, uh, I mean, Nettie had written two young adult novels. She wrote yes. a, uh, an adult novel, Who Fears Death, which has been very well received. Yes. And then returned to Akata Witch, uh, to return to the young adult world with, with Akata Witch. Mm -hmm. But Akata Witch deals specifically with an experience which is identifiably close to Nettie's own experience. That is a young woman, and Nettie grew up in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the protagonist in the Akata Witch grew up in New York and moved back to Nigeria with her parents. Now, yep. Nettie has gone back after her father died and visited, and visited Nigeria several times, and she's yep. a major writer in Africa these days. Um, and it's an interesting, it's a very interesting novel because it's a, it's a novel which tries to juggle the Nigerian perspective and the Nigerian-slash-American perspective, which is very much Nettie's own, yeah. in the context of a novel which, on its surface, if you look at the plot, plot of it by itself, um, and I don't think Nettie listens to this podcast, otherwise I'd be hearing from her. <laughs> On its own, has a, has some similarities with the Harry Potter series. It really yeah. is about a young person discovering her hidden powers, discovering going to a sorcery school, learning how to gain her powers, learning how to manipulate her powers against an absolutely intractable opponent. Um, but is that, but I mean isn't that just a classic YA trope though? Is that really just is that really Harry Potter or is that her coming to terms with you know North American well in fact uh, Western children's fiction? I think it is. I think one of the things that's happened is uh, sort of shifting into a different field altogether. Mm. Harry Potter was I remember uh, responses from people in the field when the first Harry Potter novel came out was that this is a school novel. Yeah. This is this is this is an old tradition. This is this is Tom Brown's school days. This is nothing new in English literature at all. Sure. And that was absolutely true. But Harry Potter's enormous success has completely co-opted an ancient tradition so that everybody compares anything coming out now with Harry Potter. Even when 
Um, I remember Jane Yolen wrote a sorcerer's school mm-hmm. novel oh, sure. about two years, two or three years before Harry Potter started. Now people are saying, well, Jane Yolen looks a lot like Harry Potter. No, she didn't. <laughs> she, she was doing what every other school... I mean, you, you take the British tradition of the school novel and made it with a British tradition of the fantasy coming-of-age novel, mm-hmm. and you have an inevitable result. Mm-hmm. All that the Rowling did was to, to make that extremely commercial. Yes, yes. And also didn't and not, pick up a lot of Diana Wynne-Jones along the way. Just and picking up a lot of... As I'm learning, picking up a lot of Diana Wynne Jones along the way. Yep. So there you go. I, and, 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 and as a disclaimer, I didn't read past the first Harry Potter novel. Mm-hmm. I probably should have. I feel really bad about not having done that. But I read the first novel, and my thought was, I know what's going on here. I've got it. I don't need to read the next six. And I've read a lot about the next five or six, or however many there are. Six, yeah, six. Six, okay. Um, and I thought... Um, I was pretty much right. I mean, this is pretty. She's pretty much doing what she had to do with that first one. Once she laid out the terms in the first novel, it had to go where it goes. True, true. I think that's true. I mean, I will say that. I mean, I think the books actually get weaker as they go along. I read up to book five before I gave in and just went, yeah, no, don't want to care. And uh, my my nine year old daughter howls in derision every time I say that they get weaker, but I firmly believe it. Um, they just they stopped editing the books and they just become one dreadful. of the things that I learned as as, as teaching co- students in college yeah. is that um, we live in a, a bubble we live in a privileged world where everybody we know is articulate reads a lot <laughs> are literate and so forth and so on and 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 many of the people I know look upon disdain upon the Harry Potter novels and if I were to mention to these people well you should look at oh I don't know Jody Picoult novels. You should look at some of the romance novels that are coming out. Yeah. The disdain would increase. As a teacher, I my thought, as I learned this years ago, is if I have students who read anything at all, yeah. I mean, literally, anything at all, that's to be celebrated. Yes. I well, no, yes, yeah. On students. yeah I, I, because my, my own stepdaughter is an example of this. She, she read a lot of, uh, not Jody Picoult, she read a lot of Danielle Steele. Okay, yeah. She read one Danielle Steele novel after another, and she made me read a Danielle Steele novel. And I will say this unselfconsciously, Danielle Steele knows how to tell a story. Yeah. Um, that's about all she knows how to do. <laughs> but nevertheless, she knows how to tell a story. And okay. there, was a point, there, there was a point at which my stepdaughter realized that, well, I mean, she's telling the same story over and over and over again. She's using the same phrases. And she got, and my, my, my stepdaughter is not a reader. And yeah. I would only say this thing's. I only say things because I know she's never going to listen to this podcast. Um, at some point, she realized Daniel Steele is getting a little bit boring because all you get is the same thrill out of every story that yeah. Yeah. you got before. And she moved on for a while to Jody Picoult and a few. And Jody Picoult may be a marginally better writer than Daniel mm-hmm, Steele. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you begin to realize, okay, you want more from literature. Mm-hmm. Now, most of us in the science fiction and fantasy field who grew up reading this stuff when we were, what, eight yeah. to ten years old. Sure, sure had that experience very early on for a lot of readers that are out there. They're only beginning to discover it now uh, in the thirties or forties. And I don't think we need to sort of shoot them down at this point. Oh Lord, no, God, no, 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 They're discovering their own frustrations with their favorite fiction. That's absolutely fine with me. I I think so. I mean, I I have no desire to criticize anybody else's reading. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day because I've agreed to do a panel at at SwanCon next weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've agreed to do a panel on judging a book by its cover. 
And I was thinking mm-hmm. about the, the, the whole thing about presenting books to people, how books find readers, and so on. And, you know, you really can't allow you know, I, I thought to myself no matter how you package say dan brown right dan brown is yeah. never going to appeal to me i'm never going to want to read it that's fine but that doesn't say anything there, negative about the people it does appeal to no not at all uh there's a certain small percentage of that readership who start with dan brown and might eventually find their way to tim powers let's say uh-huh. uh, who, who mines some similar territory in some areas some areas I know personally a number of people who started with the Twilight novels, the Stephanie Meyer novels. Yeah. And I, I confess, I tried the first one, and I will admit I saw the first movie all the way through. Wow. And, you did more than that. Well, uh, Kristen Stewart's not actually a bad actress. <laughs> Seriously, you, you see, she, 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 she played Joan Jett in a movie, um, and she played uh, in a movie called Adventureland, which is not bad. She's not a bad. So I, I got through it, and I can understand how people could could love this stuff and a certain proportion of those people might go on and read more sophisticated things. I suspect that a large chunk of what we now call urban fantasy is a result of writers who are actually better writers than Stephanie Myers enjoying the shadow of her success. Could well be, even though didn't uh, some of that precede her, the actual commercials dominance. Sure. It did. What what we now call urban fantasy. Um, uh, it's a phrase which I have real problems with uh, because I used to think urban fantasy, there's a period in which urban fantasy meant Charles DeLint. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there was a period before that when urban fantasy uh, as a concept, not as a genre, was probably invented practically by Fritz Leiber. Yes. Stories like Smoke Ghost. Um, and and there, were, there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of urban-based fantasy mm-hmm. stories following... Uh, following that, that story in, in, in Weird Tales in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always been there. I don't think the people who are reading Stephanie Myers are going to work their way all the way back to Fritz Leiber. Um, <laughs> but they might work their way to Charles Dillant. Well, yes, they might. And, and, and they would, in, in fact, probably enjoy it um, were they to do so. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to see how people wander around like that. I just got lost. What well, a few to- years ago, yeah. I remember there was an editorial that Chris, uh, Christine Catherine Rush wrote in when she was editing fantasy and science fiction years yeah. ago she wrote an editorial about um uh, um rl stein okay oh yeah uh, this is when the uh, rl stein novels were at their absolute peak you know the yeah they selling billions of copies a year he was at one point if i'm not mistaken the best-selling writer period in the united states if not in the world mm-hmm. and they were all most of the goosebumps books yeah and um i i i owe this to Charles Brown again, as we owe many things to Charles Brown. Yep. At one point, R.L. Stein wrote his first adult novel, which I think was called Supernatural. Does that sound right? That does sound right, yes. Okay. And it was really awful. (laughs) (laughs) It was terrible. And I thought the only way I can review this novel is to go back and find out what the appeal was of the Goosebumps. So I read a bunch of Goosebumps novels. Mm -hmm. And the Goosebumps novels were... Well, they were pretty awful also, in a way, but I, I could begin to understand every one of those novels took a, a, a 9 to 11-year-old's worst fears. Yeah. Worst fears is that you, you go to a summer camp is the worst thing that can happen to you, you know, because God knows what's going to be at summer camp, because the, the director of summer <laughs> camp could be an alien from outer space. You, know, you don't want to move into a new neighborhood because your neighbors could be vampires and zombies. And mm-hmm. he just made all these things absolutely real. 
And the novels never went anywhere. They never added up anything. But I could see the appeal of them to, to 9 to 11-year-olds. Yeah. Well, Chris Rush's editorial was saying, was defending R.L. Stein in the same way I would defend him. I was, I was not disagreeing with that part of it because she's saying maybe these people will be frustrated with R.L. Stein and they'll eventually discover, well, maybe they'll discover Peter King, uh, Peter Straub and, and, and Stephen King, mm-hmm. and, and they'll begin to read more. Uh, and she had this whole sort of idealized scenario where you go from Stein sure. to, to, sure. to, to, to Straub and, and maybe you, you pick up uh, God knows... Uh, who in between, and, and eventually you're reading literary horror and eventually you're reading fantasy and so forth. I thought the argument was wonderfully naive. I wish it were true. <laughs> but the uh, I, I, yeah. I have a suspicion that all those kids who were reading R.L. Stein novels grew up to watch Saw movies and nothing else. Uh, but I'd like to believe there was a subset of them that eventually found Clive Barker and eventually found Stephen King and eventually found maybe even Peter Straub, who is probably the most literary of that group. Um, it's a small, it's a small, small subset if it's there at all. I guess, I mean, one thing I'd say to that is n- never forget that, you know, sort of reading is a minority pastime for enjoyment and that um, the people who perhaps picked up R.L. Stein and went on to watch Saw films are pretty, pretty typical uh, and then yeah. that there are all sorts of paths to get to a Kelly Link story, you know. I mean, I started off reading what Robert Heinlein and uh, Tarka the Otter, and ended up reading Kelly Link and Ian McDonald, you know. So it's like there are many. That's paths. a really no. That's a really interesting question. How what what are the paths that lead you to a Kelly Link story or a Jeff Ford story? Yeah. Or a Mary Rickard story. Uh, I mean, those of us who were in the field, and she comes along, and uh, in the case of uh, in the case of Mary Rickard, Gordon Van Gelder more or less discovers her, uh, and says she suddenly shows up in magazine and fantasy mm-hmm, and science sure. fiction. That's that's one way you get a good editor to do it. Uh, finding Kelly Link is an interesting question because when Stranger Things happened, <laughs> what, a, what a great title! On, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was a great title, but it came out completely as a, essentially a self-published book and how did we find that book yeah i remember I, I remember having a conversation with gavin about this because i said how did that book get reviewed in the new yorker for heaven's sake yeah and, it, and the new yorker reviewed it maybe as i recall a year or maybe two years after it came out mm-hmm. uh and gavin said i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> word of mouth gary that's how. word of mouth is very powerful and word of mouth in the age of the internet, is more powerful than it ever was. Well, where did you first read Kelly? I'm trying to remember. I am really trying to remember that. I remember uh, I had read a couple of stories by her in Year's Best. I know, I found her exactly in a Year's Best anthology. Okay. It was probably Datlow and Windling. Yeah. Um, and then sometime, uh, a few months, I'd read two or three Kelly Link stories only in Year's Best anthology. Okay, yeah. And I had a conversation with Peter Straub, who was raving about her. He had gotten a copy of Stranger Things Happen when it came out, because he keeps up with these things more than I do. Sure, 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 sure. And he said, and he said, one of the most complimentary things, I don't think he ever said this to Kelly, so if Kelly ever hears this, she can hear it here for the first time. <laughs> he said, my God, I think she's influencing me. <laughs> <laughs> me. See, i got to tell you that I mean, the first time I encountered... Kelly's work was reading for the World Fantasy Awards in 2001. 
Uh-huh. I'd not encountered her work at all at that point. And she'd probably been publishing for a couple of years, I guess, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, I think she'd had a couple – it must have been a chat book published is the way I vaguely remember it. Um, and the, we, public, we, we picked a story, Something in Shoes. I've been trying to remember the title of it for the last – sort of minute or two while we've been talking about this, uh-huh. uh, which was just a terrific piece of work. And I just remember going, who is this person? Particularly since at that point, um, Shoe and Marriage from a little chapbook called Four Stories. That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is exactly the kind of thing I don't like, but I like this one. Why do I like it? And by that, I mean, the story was one of those, you, you, her early work, the stuff that, that appears in uh, the first collection, Strange Things Happen. There's right. a, an amount of um, disconnected plot that has an overarching uh, connectivity that makes it work as a story. You, you read this discrete piece, this discrete piece, this discrete piece. You see that right. they're all linked. Yeah, she does it very well. She did it very well in Shoe and Marriage. And that made me go, well, hang on. If, if I've read this and this is brilliant, what else has she done? Um, yeah. So, you know. Well, that's one of the things that goes back to the, the value of the small press. Yeah. Um, because I remember, I can't even remember who published it. I, I, I first encountered uh, Caitlin Kernan in a small press chapbook. Yeah. Maybe one story, maybe two stories. I don't remember what it, yeah. What yeah. it was. But essentially, it means that there are pathways to these writers. Yes. You've got me, you've got me thinking about this. <laughs> Mary Rickert, uh, how did I find Mary Rickert? Yeah. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I own a. I own. I. I probably owe a debt of thanks to Ellen Dadlow and Terry Wendling sure. because they found a lot of these people for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, to me, I think I've said it before here, and if I haven't, I'm going to say it now. The most important anthology I ever read was Michael Bishop's Light Years and Dark. I remember that one. Yes, absolutely. Uh, which introduced me to almost everybody who was inside it. Yeah, you know, I'd not mm-hmm. read Kate Wilhelm before. Never mind um, Howard Waldrop. Never mind. In fact, I think it's the first Ursula Le Guin short story I read was in that book. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd read uh, the, the Wizard of Earthsea stuff, but I don't think I've read any, any of her short fiction. Uh, I walked away with a reading list from that book. And I think that sort of thing happens to people. Um, now, how your own interest expands is, is, is another thing. You know, how, how you expand your interest from reading Citizen of the Galaxy to wanting to read Strange Things Happen is, is, is something else. That, that's all about you know, the evolution of a, writer, of a reader as a person, I think. But, it, but it is interesting. This is interesting, and one of the things we could we could we could just lay this question out there for mm-hmm. yeah. any readers that we have left after this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, what anthology really started you? What what anthology really taught you the basics? And I mean, I'm I'm of a generation where in, in there are two anthologies sure. that anybody over the age of let me say fifty probably experienced at some point. One was obviously the Healy and McComas Adventures yeah. in Time and Space, which is Looked at now is not a primer on science fiction, but it was a primer on Campbellian science fiction. Yes, yes. Most of the stories were from Astounding. The other one was Phyllis Wise, later Phyllis Cerf's, uh, and and Phyllis Fraser and Herbert Wise's anthology, The Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural. Okay, yeah. Which was published by Random House in 1942 and then kept in print for decades by the Modern Library. So it was available for like 50 years, that book. You you can still get the book. It's still in print. Yeah, sure. and that was I, I, I learned where I knew, learned who Algernon Blackwood was from that. I learned about Arthur Machen. I learned who yep. I learned who Lovecraft was, <clears throat> and it was a book which was essentially available to anybody forever. 
and I, I, I have a feeling there's a generation of people, my generation and maybe the generation after, who learned everything they know about supernatural fiction from that book. Yeah. Uh, and then, and, and, and to give Harlan Ellison credit, Dangerous Visions had a huge impact, not just because he was asking the writers to write, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, non-censorable stories, so the stories they weren't allowed to publish anywhere sure, else. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was trying to write transgressive stories. That's yes. He was yeah. trying to... But by and large, what that book did was it reached out at the time of Harlan's, at the height of Harlan's reputation. Mm-hmm. It brought to the attention of a lot of his readers, uh, writers like Philip Jose Farmer, that they might not have heard of, and, and, and then led people into a whole arena of uh, interesting science fiction and fantasy. Mm. Well, I mean, to me, probably the two most influential books on, on me were Silverberg's Science Fiction Hall of Fame, the, the book that yes. he did for the SFWA, which right. I encountered at a particular age, and um, Light Years and Dark, the Michael Bishop book. I have to admit, I only picked up Dangerous Visions when it was reprinted by the Golan's Masterwork series in the late 80s or early 90s. Mm-hmm. So, so it became, as it is now to any reader encountering it, an interesting artifact uh, rather than um, an enorm- enormous sort of sort of fa- you know sort of smack in the face with, with something that's sort of transgressive and, and challenging. I mean, but it was by that point it was practically a classic. I mean, oh was, yeah, no, it is very very much. There was another anthology I'll add to our list, which uh, because the the, the 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 Random House anthology, the the Modern Library anthology, Great Tales of the Supernatural, sure, Great Tales of Terror, taught me the classics. And then there was an anthology that came out, I'm thinking, early 70s by Kirby McCauley called Dark Forces. Yes, yes, very much. Yes. Which was enormous. And that was the whole new generation of writers. Those were the people I didn't yes. know. Yeah. Uh, it had, if I'm not mistaken, one of the novellas in it was Stephen King's The Mist, which is still yeah. around. Yes. Uh, and much. I thought, okay, now I have learned what current horror writing is like. Uh, yes. And I learned a whole bunch of writers like that. And I'm not sure that. I'm not sure there's been an anthology like that since then, um, uh, in, in the sense of just saying, okay, this is your, uh, this is your orientation to what's going on right now. Uh, yeah. there, there are argumentative anthologies. There are the Kessel Kelly anthologies. Their next one is going to be about Kafka-influenced stories. Yeah, I saw that. Be, yeah. Um, but I don't know if there's anything quite like Dark Forces or, or Dangerous Visions or Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural or Adventures in Time and Space that's, that's been out there for a while. Uh, well, I think there are, t- uh, there are people swinging at it, but one of the problems, and I could this this is just an entirely subjective, off the top of my head thing for the moment. Um, there's too much chaff around for it to stand out, you know. For a book like that to be successful, I think it needs room to breathe, and there's a lot of anthologies being published. There are all sorts of people trying to do, I mean, I've done it myself, trying to do historical mm-hmm. books that give you some kind of perspective on the field, or trying to do definitive books, and they're either not doing them as well as these particular classic anthologies we're talking about, or um, there's just too many other things competing. I mean, one of the last really good ones that I, I, can, I can think of was um, The Dark Descent, the Hartwell Kramer yeah, uh, anthology, which was easily the best of their retrospective books by some significant margin, you know. So you know, it's it's and, not... and that, that had the advantage of getting what three or four separate mass market paperbacks out of it. Yes, uh, Al Antonio has essentially made a career out of trying to do these these anthologies. Yeah, yeah, and they've worked in varying degrees. Yeah. Uh, he's done fantasy, he's done horror, he's done science fiction. He did the latest one with Neil Gaiman. 
Uh, none of them have, and, and, and there have been classic stories to come out of some of these. Cleopatra Brimstone, I realize, I believe came out of one of the Serenity. Yes, it did, yes. Uh, Liz Hand's story. Flights. Uh, but by and large, they haven't been quite that definitive. And you may be right. There may be just too much stuff out there right now. Mm. Somebody's starting in the... Uh, here, here, here's a writer who... And this is something we could mention briefly yeah. uh, since the Shirley Jackson Award nominations have been announced. And Larry Barron is on there in three different yes. places. Yeah, I know. And he's a terrific writer. Mm. He is, is... And I'm trying to think, how did I discover Laird Barron? And I'm thinking it had to be Nightshade Books. They put him in some anthology or they published a couple of his earlier huh. things. Yeah, okay. Um, but but he, he Laird is to me uh, an example of a contemporary, a relatively young horror writer yeah. of some significance, whose entry into the field has so far been largely confined to genre anthologies and genre readers. And I really believe he deserves a wider readership. Yeah. Well, I would agree with you. I I, I actually think that for me, my exposure to Baron was probably through uh, Ellen Datler's anthologies. Again, that may that may very well be because she's she's been a, a great tra- champion of his work over time. So, I just have so. Jason and Jeremy at Nightshade, mm. uh, but uh, but yeah, by and large, uh, how does a major and horror may be more problematical than science fiction? I mean, science fiction, you can you can still see a Paolo Bacigalupi, you can still see a Hanu Rai and Yemi sure. uh, show up sure. with an enormous splash. Uh, it's much more difficult to do that in a field like horror, which yeah. is. Yeah basically still peppered with really crappy high-profile books. Actually, I just realized I'm I'm now cheating. I'm looking at some uh, history of Laird Barron, and I'm going to disagree Uh completely about Nightshade. They've done the collections, and I applaud them for it. And I think they made his... his, But where I now know where I saw um, Barron's work, he came up through um, sci-fiction and through FNSF. Really? And that's where I read him, yeah. So, I mean, Datlow published major stories like Bulldozer and Parallax in science fiction, in sci-fiction, right. and stories like Old Virginia, Proboscis, uh, Hallucigenia. They were all FNSF stories. Really? Uh, and uh, and Datlow really, yeah. So, and then Datlow sort of took him on into her original anthologies. Um, and there's been, you know, so, so absolutely Nightshade did the two collections, and um, you got to sort of take your hat off for, for Imago sequence yeah. and occultation. And I've got to say that I would be quite surprised if Occultation doesn't win the Shirley Jackson. Quite surprised. Well, one of those certainly will. I mean, one of his, he's up in, I think, three categories. And I think Occultation is the one that sort of subsumes the other two categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see those awards. Those are very interesting awards, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started at ReaderCon. They're uh, judged awards rather than popularly voted awards. And they've been pretty sharp in terms of their selections so far yeah um, yeah and uh I, I, there's a sense in which they want to recognize that shadow land between uh what you might call genre horror and literary horror yeah. that that Shirley jackson iconically represents yes. which is why they use that name yeah um and i think of, of all the younger writers i can think of and i'm not saying this because he's a personal friend i've met him a few times he's a very nice guy and so forth but he really is a very very interesting writer mm-hmm. and possibly the most interesting writer to come into that genre since who was the last really interesting new horror writer <laughs> hmm. oh i don't know somebody i'm not a horror reader gary uh, uh well the, the, what i mean by a really interesting new horror writer is uh, my definition of that is a really interesting new fantasy writer okay whose stories can cross uh the uh the kind of 
line between between what you think of as traditional genre horror, leisure books horror, let's say, yeah. and and the kind of horror that let's say Peter Straub writes, which, yeah. is, which is very literary, and 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 Baron is in that category. There are uh, Clive Barker was in and out of that category for a while, um, but Laird Baron is the newest uh, the newest writer I can think of. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And I say that as somebody who doesn't read a lot of horror either. I read horror yeah, when sure. it shows up in things like anthologies. Yes, and I realize, okay, this guy is this is writer, this guy, this woman is very interesting. Car- Caitlin Kernan is a very interesting writer. Yep, she is uh, the same for the same rope, uh, the same uh, by the same token, and, and is up for the can, Jackson. And she's up for the Jackson as well. But um, uh, the, the interesting horror writers to me are the ones. Actually, I can I can use Caitlin's story in your latest Eclipse if you don't mind. Sure, sure, sure. It, it could be read as it could be read as kind of quantum physics science fiction. There could uh. be a black hole in the story. There's a relationship story involved in it, which is very central to the dynamic of the story. Um, it works very well on a lot of levels. Um, as yep. one of these things that happens after I, weeks after I review a book, I'm thinking, did I really pick out the best stories in that book? Which one <laughs> stick? Well, that's what, this is normal. It's normal. I'm one of the one of the one of the issues, and I've talked about this before. Of being a monthly reviewer is that mm-hmm. the way to really review an anthology is to look at it three months later and think, sure. what do you remember from that? And from Eclipse Four, one of the ones I remember is Caitlin's story. Yeah. Um, and it's very powerful. She's a, she's a very interesting writer. She is. Um, and she's the more comfortable she gets in writing in, in inside this space, this defined space, which is not quite science fiction, not quite horror, not quite yeah. uh, uh, love relationship stories, uh, the better she gets. Um, the more she, and, and she's uh, she. Well, thank thank goodness at the number of people who don't listen to these podcasts. <laughs> More she tries to write pure science fiction or the pure horror, the less successful she is. I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to say to you that I don't think she tries to. Given she the, the did. given the degree to which she she um, pr- you know really gets angry at being called a horror writer, really gets angry about it, right? She should. She should. Um, because what she's done is she's learnt all of the bits and pieces of these various things and uses them in her work, which transcends all of those things. I agree with that, except for the word transcends. Okay. Incorporates? Okay, incorporates. Incorporates, okay. Whatever, okay. (laughs) But yeah, I I think the best writers do that. I think the best of Clive Barker does that. I think think Peter Straub does that. I'm I'm biased, I admit, in that case. But I I think Peter does it on a fairly regular basis. I think Caitlin has been learning how to do it. And I think the best parts of her books, and the reason I mentioned... Uh, science fiction is that uh, she did write a book called The Dry Salvages, The Dry yes, Salvages, yeah. if, you, if, if you use the T.S. Eliot pronunciation. Of it. Which nobody um, does, Gary. Nobody does. Nobody. Nobody does. Well, T.S. Eliot. Um, Bit of a wanker, probably. Bits. The parts of that that worked best were not the science fiction parts. No. Well, okay, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's characteristic of her fiction. I think uh, The Red Tree is her best novel. Yeah. As far as I can... And because... She was writing the novel she wanted to write, and you're absolutely right. It it took elements and incorporated everything she'd learned. As she was a what archaeologist or something, wasn't she? At some point, something or like anthropo- no. She, she 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 is academically trained. She knew how to do. Oh no, absolutely. Research. It was either archaeology or something to do with uh, din- dinosaurs and all that kind of thing. Well, and, she certainly knew. She knows knows yeah. her way around scientific research. She knows yeah. how to describe that. Yeah. She knows how to describe that in a context that still works. And within a horror story, 
yeah. uh, works within a story of relationships, which works within a kind of uh, memoir story. She's, yeah. she's an extremely talented writer who's just, at, at this point, getting into her own voice. Yes. And I think we can see, uh, we seriously uh, looked at The Red Tree uh, in, in terms of the World Fantasy Awards. We sure, were all sure. very impressed by that novel. Yeah. And it, and I remember, I remember reading that at the time thinking, this is what she needs to do. And there are right. You must have had this experience because you read lots of stories from writers who are uh, working on short fiction and, and, and working out the next thing they're going to do. Sure. A sense that this writer is finally starting to do what he or she needs to be doing. Yes, I think so. I do it's think it's a very true. critical attitude. It may be a very editorial attitude, but there's there's a sense I have from that when writers are trying to do things they're not comfortable with and then you see them move into a comfort yeah. zone yes. and realize this is what they need to do. What's uh, interesting there with Kiernan, of course, if you follow her uh, <clears throat> her, her blog, which I, I do, uh, and by the way, she's a, she was a paleontologist is what she was. Okay. Um, but she's got one more novel coming. She's just finished a new novel, the, the one that follows the red tree, though it's got nothing to do with that. And then she's off to write young adult novels under another, under another name. Oh, really? Yep. That could work. Um, she has a lot of things going for her. She has a lot of different things going for her. She is a scientist. She is a horror writer. She uh, she deals with gender issues in a very sophisticated way. She does. And uh, all those things are things that could work very well in, in, in the YA field. Uh, yeah. uh, well, which, which goes back to an, uh, an issue which we've talked about many times and yep. probably should come back to, which is the extent to which YA and fantasy and science fiction have become virtually indistinguishable yes. character, uh, categories for, for many of us. Very much. I think so. I think they really have been. But, Gary, we're just about at the end of this podcast. We, we've been talking for an are. hour. We need to stop. When when Caitlin Kiernan finishes The Drowning Girl, uh, I'll make sure you get it. Maybe I'll send you the best of Caitlin Kiernan uh, when, uh, when we get the galleys of it to have a look at. That'd be fascinating. Is that uh, Who's doing that? Is that... Uh... Again. It is indeed, Bill. Uh, yes, doing a big book, two hundred odd thousand words of, of Kate Caitlin Kiernan's fiction. I think she sees that perhaps, and I'm putting words in her mouth. So I might be wrong. I think that's a bit of a, a full stop on things as she sort of finishes this major new novel and then moves on to other things. So, anyway, we have wandered all over the world in filling in our hour, uh, and there are many things we didn't get to, which is probably a good thing. It'll give us something to bore people with next week. Um, but it's been good. Maybe next time we'll come up with something else to talk Excellent. about. Excellent. Maybe we'll have a theme for one of these one of these days. Maybe. Or maybe we'll, we'll bring in another guest to make us look good because that's always sort of worth doing. I mean, I was watching Skype in the background as we've been talking because for dear audience, we do this over Skype. And I actually saw Kelly Link pop online and pop offline and pop on. And I nearly went, I'll just grab her and pop, see if she'll pop in. But we'll do something different. And we've got to, in fact, we'll have to work it out because next week, dear listeners, SwanCon, I will be at the Hyatt Hotel in Perth, Western Australia. Um, and we'll be doing panel items. I'm doing a I'm doing an 8:30 a.m. breakfast thing, Gary. Um, oh no! After our podcast, okay, we have to we have to figure out who you can draw into our podcast. I know Elisa's going to. <laughs> she no, in fairness, she's the chairman of the convention. I'm not sure well, you're going to be able to get Elisa, her. I have a good convention. Hi, Elisa. I hope it goes really well. But Tansy's going to be over. Yeah, Tansy will be over. Alex will be over. Um, Kirsten from the writer and the critic will be over, though Ian sadly won't be. And I know Sean Williams and Simon Brown and all kinds of pals will be there. So anything's possible. We'll have to see. I know I'm supposed to record a a super mega thingy podcast with with some people there at one one point, 
But we'll see what else we can arrange because that would be fun. Even though, as, as we've talked about before, fitting in a podcast around a convention is always an interesting experience. It's always difficult. We'll talk about it in advance. And I'll be going to several conventions probably later this summer. I'll be at World Horror Convention in Long mm-hmm. Island. I may be at the Locus Awards in Seattle. I'll be at ReaderCon. Yep. Um, and I guess, well, I know I'll be at this point. I'll probably be at uh, Worldcon, and I hope you'll be there too. I hope I'll be at Worldcon. I mean, I, w- I wish I could be at ReaderCon. I mean, it's nice to be up for for the award there. So um, that would be would be fun. But I doubt. But obviously, I won't be this year. But yeah, yeah cert- certainly it, wor- it remains Worldcon or World Fantasy. We'll, we'll decide right after Easter. So okay, uh, we'll talk soon. On that happy All note. Right. On that happy note. Take care. All, All right. right. Same to you. Okay. Bye.